following teaching is from the Warrior's Heart Bible Study for Men. You can find us on the web at warriorsheart.org. We hope you have a great day. When I'm finished up at the office and I'm on my way home, I usually leave around 6 or 6.30, head home. It takes about 45 minutes, sometimes to an hour to get home. And so I, I like to call my wife, Yvonne, and chat with her about how the day went and uh, just rehearse over the, the events of the day. And sometimes, sometimes well, by the time I get home and then we sit down for dinner, I get home roughly around 7, 7.15, we'll sit down and have a meal. And then after a really long day, like so many of the days are, especially during this initiation for us, the beginning of a school year, and sometimes I'm just so tired, I just, I can't do anything. My mind is just exhausted and my spirit is exhausted, so I'll sit down on the sofa and Yvonne will sit down on the sofa and we'll turn on the TV and that's about all the energy I have left is to use my thumb and and to do something with uh, channel surfing. But most of us probably think that probably channel surfing is not the um, the most productive way to spend our time, and uh, and yet I, I can't I can't imagine how in the world someone like Suzanne was able to do it and become productive. And she recalls sitting down at the sofa and and doing nothing but channel surfing, and she got stuck on a, a reality show where people who are not trained actors but trying to just to survive, they would do silly things like make alliances with each other so that they could beat out another alliance. But as soon as the other alliance was overcome and beat up, then they would start uh, fighting each other. And then she would switch back after she got bored of that, and she'd watch the invasion of Iraq and see how awful it was to have so much turmoil all over the place, things blowing up and things burning. She'd go back to the reality TV again. And before you know it, she's going back and forth and back and forth. And something something happened in her brain, I guess, or her, her spirit, and she decided that she would write a story about this confluence of this tremendous sense of reality TV and the invasion of Iraq. And she put together an amazing story that's called The Hunger Games. So The Hunger Games came out of one of those moments of channel surfing. And as she went back and forth between all that, she wrote that crazy story that just captured the attention of almost every single teenager and young person in their 20s. And we, who are older than our 20s and in our teenage years, we were captivated by the interest of all these younger people. And what in the world is so fascinating about this book you're reading? And then the, now this second book, now this trilogy. So we decided to go watch the movie as well. And, of course, she's made millions and millions of dollars just because of that sitting down on the sofa being a couch potato. But as uh, I read those books, I was fascinated by her skill in writing. And as I watched the, the movies, I was amazed at how the story translated from the pages of script, uh, pages of, of just ink on page all the way up into a, a, a full-fledged fi- uh, film. And I was amazed. And I kept thinking to myself, you, you really distill all that down to a simple idea. And that is that people who are in a desperate situation, what in the world do they do? They look for somebody they could trust. And then if they think they could trust them, they take a risk. And when they take a risk in a relationship to trust someone, hopefully they could survive a little longer. Now that seems to be the whole storyline of the Hunger Games. And as I contemplate that possibility for us, as we think about the city of Houston, uh, we're surrounded by people who are incredibly desperate. 
and yet they just don't have anybody to depend upon. Now, the statistics I checked on recently are the same. Women have anywhere from two to three women that they can count on to call whenever anything goes wrong in their life. But for all of us men, the statistics are we have about uh, 0.6 people that we can call if things get really rough because so many of us have so few that we can actually trust when things get desperate. So they have actually statistically said men actually have no one. On average, men have no one that they can call on when it comes time to call when you're in a desperate situation. So probably all of you are starting to think, yeah, do I have anybody that I could call? Is there, when I get in a desperate situation and the, the bottom of my life falls out, who do I turn to? And it's one of those amazing phenomena. I, I was just thanking the Lord the other day as I uh, had my quiet time. I said, Lord, I thank you for these three guys. Uh, one's in Portland, one's in um, Detroit, and one's here in, in Houston. Three guys that I know that if, if I needed uh, help, I could call them. And if uh, someone needed to take a bullet for me, those guys wouldn't even wait for me to ask. They'd jump in the way of a bullet and take it for me. And I would think about doing the same thing for them. Maybe, you know, it's possible. But there's uh, that kind of relationship of dependence when we think about relationships. Who in the world can we trust when things go badly? And that's one of the great themes that we've been thinking about here in our evangelistic effort for the city of Houston. We we don't want to just turn you into people who are going to go to the street corner and preach crazy things and wave your arms and shout and scream and spit. But we know that God has placed you in a situation where there are a lot of people around you, people that the rest of us will never, ever get a chance to interact with. And we also know that in the inevitability of how life goes, those people that are in the area of your circumference are going to go through a tough time. It's just inevitable. It will happen. And when those people go through a tough time, where are they going to turn? If it's a guy, they won't have anybody to turn to. So who will they reach out to? Who will they desperately try to grab a hold of in their hunger gains when there's something going on when it's life and death and tragedy and difficulty? By God's grace, they will remember you because of the way you lived your life with a tranquility and a peace and a delight and an excellence in the work that you do and a substantive thing you might have said or done and suddenly their attention has been attracted to you. Well, here's an amazing passage of scripture that we're going to look at today in the Gospel of Mark when Jesus Christ does some amazing things. And at first it looks like, wow, it's just a lot of events. It's a lot of things happening. But we're going to take a chunk today and try to convince you that really what Jesus is doing is not only being busy in ministry, but he's trying to lay a foundation of trustworthiness. He's going to be establishing his credentials that he is one worth believing in. And he's going to demonstrate his authority in a number of different areas so that we are overwhelmed by the time we finish this passage of Scripture and say, wow, this Jesus, he is really something. It's not just that he's busy doing a lot of stuff. Pay very careful attention then in his busyness. At the beginning here of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is laying the foundation of why we can turn our attention and put our trust in him. Now, we can be one of those people then who is around when somebody else in our workplace, our neighborhood, maybe one of our relatives, a family member, a, a, a friend from our past, when, we, when they go through a tough time and they're thinking, man, what do I do now? I'm facing this tragedy and where do I turn? May they remember what they saw and heard in our life as we represent people who are followers of this Jesus 
who established his amazing authority. So here in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 to 30, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. Repent and believe the good news. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. Now some people read over that so quickly and say, well, this is just the beginning of Jesus Christ's ministry. Well, really, it's a lot more than that. When we contemplate the possibilities of what this passage of Scripture means, it is stunning that Jesus Christ calls these guys and they leave their entire profession and follow Jesus. Now, the first time I read this as a kid, I still remember thinking, wow, it's, I don't know if I would do that. A total stranger comes up and says to me, I'm going to make you a fisher of men. Come follow me. And I don't know if I would leave my family and, and my schooling and everything that I knew that was familiar and followed a total stranger. But when we look at the Gospels, at least for these individuals here, these individuals were a little bit different because if we try to compare Scripture with Scripture, in John chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to John chapter 4, verse 43, all of that occurred in that accounting occurred before Mark chapter 1, verse 14. Everything recorded in the first four chapters of John happened before Mark 1, 14. So these guys like uh, Peter and Andrew and and the sons of uh, that he's going to be calling here in a little bit, these initial disciples actually had exposure to Jesus, hearing him teach, watching him in action before the calling actually took place. So if you put it in chronological sequence, they had a great opportunity to be exposed to who this Jesus was. Now that tells us something about what Jesus Christ is doing, not just a lot of activity, but when Christ calls someone to follow him, he gives them a good chance to deeply consider what they're getting into. And so for most of us here, think back of when God called us for our salvation, when God called us for our service. We really can't say, yeah, I've got a lot of buyer's regret. Yeah, I've got a lot of doubts now that I've actually signed on as a follower of Jesus. But if we can look back at all of that that God has done for us, provided for us, intervened for us, provided for us, and said, no, I have no doubts that I am, I have totally committed to my salvation experience. And I thank God for that. Without it, I'd be lost. And I'm totally grateful for the privilege that he's left me here to serve him. And I have no regrets and I will not turn back. If we are that convinced that that's how we want to live our lives, that same conviction can be a huge blessing to someone who has no clue who Jesus Christ is because we are convinced that it is absolutely valid and it was a great decision in our life to follow Jesus. Now there's a second thing here with regard to the authority of the Jesus Christ, not only his ability to call individuals and make them totally satisfied with regard to that decision. Jesus Christ also had this amazing power over demons. Here in Mark chapter 1, verses 21 to 28, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching. You see this reaction? It's a cause-effect. How Jesus taught and the reaction that it elicited from those who heard Jesus teach. Because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Well, you have to know a little bit about the background of how things happened in the synagogue. And all they did back there when people taught in the synagogues is they quoted other Jewish scholars. That's all they did. They quoted them, and then they had a word of explanation of what that meant. Jesus Christ taught in the synagogues and he didn't quote anybody. He just taught truth. 
because he had a relationship with the Father. And this is part of the expression of the demonstration and the illustration of the Trinity. This powerful relationship between the Father and the Son. And how the Spirit of God was able to take that truth and give it a birthplace in the life of those who listened. Now, when you hear good teaching and when you hear good preaching and it does something to your soul, it's really not about the person who's merely the messenger who delivers that thought, that idea, that lesson. It's about what you now think so deeply and intimately about the God you follow and trust. Jesus Christ did that for these individuals, and they're absolutely overwhelmed. But that authority of what was real about spiritual truth was not theory. It was all about the supernatural world, the spiritual world, and how Jesus Christ's authority wasn't just for human ears, but had an influence beyond what the human eye can see. And so Jesus Christ runs into this man here in the synagogue, and the man uh, was possessed uh, by an evil spirit, cried out. And he says, I know who you are, referring to his reference to Jesus, the Holy One of God. Jesus Christ responds to that and says, well done, good and faithful servant. You've identified me correctly. Doesn't do that. Be quiet. Or that's a nice biblical way of saying, shut your mouth, dude. Come out of him. The evil spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. Jesus Christ did not want the evil world to be his primary focus of advertisement. Now, gentlemen, there's a huge lesson here for all of us. If we're going to be representatives of Jesus Christ, how we live our lives is going to have an imprint on the lives of people who are watching and listening to us before that tragic moment in their lives comes. And when it does come, they're not going to be looking to the guy who's cussing his mouth off, the guy who's cheating on his time, the guy who's dishonest with regard to how he functions in his work. They're not. Because someone will stand out in deep contrast to that, someone that they can trust because of how they live their lives. So as Jesus Christ deals with this whole business of his authority as a teacher, which we should be very used to as individuals. How can we discern when we hear good truth? His authority to call men, his authority to teach, and this amazing sense how people responded to who Jesus was, and authority over, his, over demons as he interacted with them, absolutely phenomenal. This is the Jesus Christ that we say that we are followers of, and it doesn't matter what anybody who's focused on political correctness will try to dominate us with, it's us not trying to win a debate among people, but how we live our lives with an authority that is from beyond this world. Not so that we can show off, so that we can lay a foundation of relationships so that those who go through difficulties, and they will, will know who to turn to, and we will be ready to give them a very quick answer. Yes, I do know an answer for the difficulty and pain that you experience. One of my great privileges that I have as a teacher in seminary is I have these amazing students that go through our classrooms every single semester. And every single year, we graduate 30 or 35 students who go off in the ministry. And when I develop a relationship with these students over all these years of seminary preparation, I just give them a very powerful promise. And I, and I stick with this, and I've been doing it for decades. I tell my students, I know that when you get out of the ministry, it's going to be really exciting, but it's also going to be overwhelmingly difficult at times. 
If you ever find yourself in a moment when you're, com- you're completely spent and you really feel like maybe that calling you heard was maybe some, some bad guacamole you ate instead of the Holy Spirit, and you're thinking about quitting because really you don't think anyone really cares, and you just are tired of beating your head against the wall, and when those moments come in your life and ministry, I want you to remember me because I give you this promise. No matter where you are or what you're doing, if you call me for help, I will be there for you, and I will pray with you, and I will be there by your side for, for however long it takes for you to go through ministry. And uh, over the years, it's been amazing to me. I, I've gotten those calls on occasion. Uh, one of the mo- mo- more memorable ones was I got a call, and it wasn't one of my students, but it was a wife of one of my students. And she says, Bruce, how you doing? I says, great, how you doing? And how's so-and-so? And she says, oh, and there's this long silence. And whenever that long silence comes and you've been in ministry for a while, you know that what's about to come. And so you just prepare yourself. And then there were sobs and then there was open crying. And she just says, Bruce, I know you're really busy, but if there's any chance you can call him, he is really up against it. I said, enough said. I said, I, I, I said I'll call him as soon as I hang up. And uh, so she hung up, and, and uh, I hung up, and I spent some time praying. I says, God, you know that this is one of your finest. And what a blessing for me to have the privilege from you to have some input in his life. And I know he's going through a tough time, but I don't know what the specifics are. But give me the words to say and make this time special. So I called his number, and, it, and after about five or six rings, he answered. And I says, hey, how you doing? Bruce here. Bruce, so nice to hear from you. Then there's this long silence. He says, my wife called you, didn't she? (laughs) You know, you try to hold confidences, but then you just start laughing. And man, she really loves you. And he starts laughing. And and I said, I really love you. and, And you know, I'm here to tell you that Jesus really loves you. And then the, the laughing stopped. And a long silence reappeared. And then there were long sobs. Just deep, soulful crying. And it's one of those kinds of things when you have to absolutely say to yourself, do we really believe Jesus Christ enough that I could represent him well in the life of someone who's going through one of the deepest, darkest tunnels of his life? It's not because of my wisdom. It's not because I've got anything bright to say but I just want to represent Jesus Christ personified in flesh and blood for this person who has nowhere else to turn. I mean, if if the Hunger Games can attract that much attention, you know what it tells me? There's a lot of people out there who are desperate and are wondering, how in the world do I survive in this world? Who would I turn to? There's no Katniss in my life. Maybe I'll learn to learn archery. But instead, what these people don't realize is that all of us here, guys, who might be in their life because we're working the same place, we're in the cubicle down the hall, we're in the office down the down on the other side of the wing, and we see each other in cafeteria, we have an interaction at a meeting. You know, there's something about our demeanor. There's something about how we live our lives. There's something about the values that overwhelm themselves as we live our lives for them. So it establishes that potential in the future where people want to put their faith and belief in someone named Jesus Christ who we follow. 
Now, gentlemen, this is one of the most amazing things when Jesus Christ has this amazing demonstration of authority to call men to be overwhelming with regard to demons. And it's not something that's hocus-pocus. It's not science fiction. It is real, the supernatural spiritual world. And now Jesus Christ comes along here and he adds to that layer. It's not just his ability to do miracles and teach amazing things. He does something that's very unusual for famous people. And that is he does something personal. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever and they told Jesus about her. So he says, well, I'm really too busy. One of you minions of mine can take care of her. Couldn't do that. So he, Jesus, went to her, took her hand. We never even know her name. Jesus knew it. We don't know it. And because of that ambiguity there, we sometimes overlook it. But the reality is, is that Christ is incredibly powerful with an amazing authority that can actually command demons. And now he comes along here personally and touches the life of this woman. And, he, and she, the fever left her as soon as he touched her and he helped her up and she began to wait on him. And this is that amazing double twofold miracle. He not only got rid of the fever, but restored her strength so that right after the fever broke and was gone, she got up and served him. Not because Jesus Christ was looking for service, but he's giving her a chance to fulfill what she's been called to do and what she deep, deeply, desperately desired to do on her own. That, that is a phenomenal kind of thing when Jesus Christ will do that personally for others. So here is this feverish female, and Jesus Christ gets very personal with her, Peter's mother-in-law, now, that's one of those really quiet things you could bring up to any of your Catholic friends. Uh, Peter, really, really, he probably was, a, he probably was married. He had a mother-in-law. And um, so all the popes and, and somehow made up something along the way and denied themselves of one of the greatest privileges in the world to become better men to have a wife along their side. And I'm not trying to just be sarcastic with the Catholic faith because I've had amazing Christians friends who, were, who came out of the Catholic Church, and even amazing Christian friends, not as many, who are still in the Catholic Church, and we still talk about the phenomenon of what the Scripture says compared to the faith that they lived. Bedridden with fever, just with a simple touch, the fever left, and what Jesus Christ can do to touch the lives of those other people in our immediate service. But Christ is not only having the authority to call individuals out of their lifestyle and give them a fulfillment and a satisfaction that is overwhelming, and he has the ability to command demons who obey him. But Jesus Christ can get incredibly personal. He will customize miracles just for you. You don't promise that to other people who are desperate who don't know Jesus yet, but you tell them how personal Jesus Christ has been to you and tell them that Christ can be that personal to you with your salvation. This is what Jesus has done already for you. Phenomenal that we can look at the life of Jesus Christ, and he's the real deal. He's the kind of guy who lived this life not just because of the overwhelming sense of his popularity and the bigness of his reputation, but the reality of his dependence upon his relationship with the Father through prayer. Now, there's a sense where those people who've gone into ministry and have become really famous, become very well known, get lost in the notoriety because of the attention of people an elixir. It's something that you can get stuck on from drugs, and it's something that we need to pray for our leaders that God is using in a very powerful way. But almost invariably, when you start to talk to some of these who have risen so high and then fallen so low, they lost something in the process, and that is they started to look and listen to what people were saying 
rather than what the father was saying to them in private. Their prayer life almost always tracks with their fall from popularity and into sin that has overwhelmed them and then disqualified them from ministry. But when people in ministry keep that private time with God as a high priority, Jesus Christ exemplified how that is very important for us. His priority on prayer very early in the morning at daybreak before there was absolutely any light out there. That's what some of the volunteers have done before the sun came up. Be making sure that this room is ready for us to have this time of interaction. Incredible that guys would be that sacrificial. He looked for him and they tried to hunt him down. That's the language. So if you're here and you're a hunter, this is one of those biblical bases for hunting being a godly activity. It's actually put in to the Bible. None of you are writing that down, I see. <laughs> Everyone is looking for you, but not about their popular opinion. Jesus Christ was not after that. And his whole interest was simply that he had a purpose that was more overwhelming to him than the popular appeal of people. So then we come down to Jesus Christ here at this last climactic moment in this passage of Scripture that to me is stunning, and we'll finish off with this section. A man with leprosy, incurable disease at that time, We don't know if it was something as simple as psoriasis or something as as awful as the kind of leprosy that Ben-Hur made very popular, but the effect community-wise was the same. You're an outcast. Came to him and begged him on his knees, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now, he broke all of the, the, the Levitical laws for a person who had been declared a leper. He's supposed to stay away from people and actually warn them verbally to stay away. On a windy day, he had to give them even more leeway so that he would be downwind from all of those folks. But here, instead of staying away from people, he came toward them. And if you can imagine Jesus walking along with all these people, the leper seeing Jesus running toward Jesus, everybody else falls away, goes away from the leper that they know, and the only one who's standing his ground is Jesus, only one. So then this guy comes to Jesus and said, if you're willing, you can make me clean. The Bible says here, filled with compassion, same kind of word that talks about us being filled by the Spirit, so we're controlled by him. This compassion controls Jesus. Jesus reaches out his hand and touches a man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cured. Did you notice the timing? The leprosy immediately left Jesus when Jesus Christ spoke those words. But in the sequence, Jesus Christ actually reaches out and touches the leper before he speaks those words. So get the sequence. The man is a leper. Jesus Christ reaches out and touches the man. He still got his leprosy. Then Jesus says, I am willing, be clean. And then the leprosy immediately left him. I like to refer to this again as a dual miracle. It's not only the miracle that was secondary, and that was the cleansing of the leprosy. But can you imagine what it was like for the leper to be touched by the hand of a man who had not had the disease. By that, Jesus Christ saying, I accept you just as you are. I have no fear to touch you, even with your disease. There was a healing in that man's soul and spirit that occurred at that moment. It's not written in scripture, but must have happened. And after that amazing salvation of his soul and spirit, then his body was then cleansed. That's the kind of Jesus we have decided to follow because his authority over the incurable 
doesn't even threaten him one single bit. When life is desperate, can we turn to someone who can take the impossible and make it wonderful? So we all see that the Ebola deal has been a big deal for us these days, and we can all recognize the picture and the leprosy that was here, an amazing double healing that occurred, and the limitation are the particular assignment and where we would want to go. So when we are desperate, where do we go? So someone who has this amazing authority and call over men, amazing sense where the evil spiritual world answers to him, a God who has so much power and authority, he can be deeply personal, someone who's deeply involved with prayer, showing the relationship of intimacy with the Father, and an incredible sense of authority over even the incurable diseases. Not just with the disease itself, but with the healing that happens on the inside of an individual. My kids were small, and uh, they were running around having a water fight, and I have a, our daughter's oldest and then two boys, and I was out taking care of the yard. And all of a sudden, I, I noticed that my daughter was screaming her head off and running straight toward me with the boys right behind her. She was totally soaked from the top of her head down to her feet, and the boys were completely dry. And they had ganged up on her and laughing in the whole process, having much fun with it. She was in tears. She came running up and says, Dad, Dad, they're picking on me. They ganged up on me, and I can't do anything about it. And the boys are kind of giggling and laughing that they had developed a strategy to overwhelm their older sister. And I says, oh, really? And I just stood there, like, not paying attention. And I was watering the, the, the plants. I said, oh, they, they were picking on you. And she was, yes. And her tears just kept on pouring and pouring and pouring. I says, wow, that's just doesn't seem fair. No, it's not. And the boys are just laughing. And so right at that moment, I turned the hose on the boys, sprayed them down from head to toe. And all of a sudden, my daughter got really happy. She started laughing again, and the boys were laughing again. And all of a sudden, the three of them ran off having another water war with their little squirt guns, having so much fun. That's exactly what happens here in Mark chapter 1. In a desperate situation, in so many situations, people don't know where to turn. Will they turn to the person who's cheating and cussing and having values that says it's all about you, forget your family, forget your wife, forget everything that you've ever known, just take care of yourself, or will they turn to you? Because they've seen something about you where values are so important. It goes way beyond this world. And a trust in the focus of who Jesus Christ is and what he means to you. That's whom they will turn to. And that's what this lesson is all about. Thank you for joining us on this week's podcast. We hope you can join us in person. We meet Thursday mornings at 6.30 a.m. in the Fellowship Center of Houston's First Baptist Church. For more details and to register, you can visit us on the web at warriorsheart.org. That's warriorsheart.org. We hope you have a great day.